Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt, felt I this right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well... I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about the political side of science. Whether it's through funding agendas, cultural lobbies, or personal bias, politics shapes science in many ways. And since there's an election coming up on November 7th for all our listeners in the U.S., our stories this week examine the intersection of science and politics. Our first story is from Gretchen Goldman. Gretchen is the Climate Change Research and Technology Director at the U.S. Department of Transportation. She also served in the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy as the Assistant Director for Environmental Science, Engineering, Policy, and Justice. And beyond those huge jobs, Glamour Magazine named her Woman of the Year in 2020. Gretchen was recorded in Washington, D.C. this year, and her story is all about that moment when you realize that seemingly little thing from your past is actually a very big thing in your present. Here's Gretchen. Where would science be if we changed data? My 11th grade teacher asked me. I was standing in her office with some classmates, and I didn't answer the question. I just stood there feeling small. My classmates and I had just been caught cheating on a chemistry lab. The right answer on the lab ended in a six, but when we got home and we looked at our printouts, our results ended in a five. So rather than take the time to redo a lab, we decided that we would use careful pencil marks and turn our fives into sixes and turn it in. And we did, but our teacher saw through this and called us into her office. And for the record, I want to note that it was definitely not my homework that gave away our game because that six was flawless. <laughs> So um, our teacher explained what a big deal it was to change data in science. I, I probably should have been more embarrassed, but part of me was just annoyed. I never really liked science class in high school. It, it all just seemed so detached from the real world. I felt like, what was the purpose of calibrating to 0.06? What would that teach me about how to understand the world better? 
But soon my attitude would change, and I learned that I actually liked science when it was applied to something that I could see that was more tangible in the real world. And I landed in a PhD program in environmental engineering. My research focused on air quality and health effects, and it had this really satisfying connection to the real world. The research that I did as a graduate student fed directly into a federal policy process that set air pollution standards for the entire country. And it felt really satisfying and impactful to do that work. Uh, so much so that it, it, I decided to go into science policy because of that work. So after I graduated with a PhD, I got that chance. And I was walking into an interview to be a scientific integrity analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And you might ask, what's a scientific integrity analyst? Well, I can guarantee you I did not know when I walked into that interview. But I felt like I knew a thing or two about science and policy from my air quality work. So uh, I walk in, and the interview starts. Thank you for your interest in the position. First question, how do you think that science is doing in Washington? My brain scrambled. The multitude of disciplines encompassed by the term science? How is it doing in a geographic location? Um, should I talk about my geospatial air quality models? Should I talk about that thing from the local news yesterday? What does this question even mean? And I fumbled something about the need to improve science and federal decision making, and I somehow got the job. They took a chance on me. So despite my misdeeds in 11th grade chemistry, I now had one job, and that one job was to protect the integrity of data and science. So this work uh, largely involved tracking the use and misuse of science in federal policy processes and holding accountable decision makers when science was sidelined. It went along at a steady rate, and I really enjoyed the work for many years. And then the Trump administration happened, and suddenly my role was thrust into the spotlight. What was once this nerdy niche topic of federal scientific integrity was suddenly a frequent topic on headline news. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned that I can apparently say uh, very well on to a reporter uh, on air with a straight face that in fact you cannot reroute a hurricane path with a Sharpie. <laughs> and that in no circumstances should you drink bleach to try to rid yourself of COVID-19. So uh, science was getting sidelined day and night, left and right, and it took up most of my time. Uh, and I remember one chaotic day, I had finished my bike commute home and saw some missed calls from a colleague. I called him back, what's up, I said. The administration just killed the panel, he said and my jaw dropped. The panel was a group of scientists that was slated to inform and provide science advice for federal air pollution regulations, so the public health protections uh, against particulate matter, which was, is a pollutant that causes tens of thousands of early deaths in the US every year. And the administration had just cut scientists out of the process entirely. I found myself getting angry. 
this was that beautiful science policy process that I learned about and fed into in graduate school, the, the one that had made me choose to go into science policy in the first place. And the administration had just taken a wrecking ball to it. I thought about my chemistry teacher's words. Where would science be if we changed data? What happens to a country when we ignore scientists on matters of health and safety? The stakes were now so much bigger than my chemistry homework. What should we do, my colleague asked. I knew we had to act fast. There was only a few people who were poised to explain in real time what this meant and that it would harm people. But I was already home from work. My kids were about to be home. I knew that I didn't have time to call 10 reporters or write a whole article about the consequences that this decision would have. So I thought about what people in Washington, DC do when they had something to say in 2018. How about I tweet, I said. And so I took to Twitter and I wrote, this is bad. And after that, words just streamed out of me as I tried to convey that this seemingly mundane policy move would actually harm real people across the country and we couldn't let it stand. And I pressed send on my thread right as my kids were walking up the front step about to come home. Those tweets that I sent in a rage that night were actually pulled into the New York Times story announcing the scientist's dismissal. I had successfully sounded the alarm. But I couldn't leave it at that. This issue felt so personal to me. I had to find a way for the scientist's message to be heard, even if administration officials didn't want to hear it. So I decided I would try to convene them myself. And to my surprise, the scientists said yes. So we held a meeting that was just as if the scientists would have had if the administration hadn't killed that panel. And we live streamed the whole event and we took public comments. And uh, you'd think that a move that was so novel and so defiant of a presidential administration would attract a lot of attention. Uh, someone actually brought popcorn to the meeting but uh, the reality is that it was just a long, boring science meeting. And that's exactly what it should have been. Uh, a group of independent scientists discussing the state of the science and how best to protect the public from air pollution. To me, it was beautiful. So after the meeting, we uh, hand-delivered the recommendations of the scientists to the administrator officials themselves, and uh, it felt really good. They had tried to take science out of the process, and we put it right back in. All told, my team tracked 206 times that the administration sidelined science. That's averaging once a week for four years. No wonder I was exhausted. And that staggering number showed just how clearly that we really needed to improve scientific integrity in this country. So I watched with high hopes when uh, huge monitors flashed the word science behind President-elect Biden when he did his acceptance speech. And on his first day, in off uh, first week in office, he announced actions to strengthen scientific integrity across the government. By June of that year, I had been called up to the White House to advance this work. So now I would have a bigger platform than ever to advance the role of science in policy and make it count in the real world. 
So I dove in. I worked with scientific integrity experts from across the government. I worked with uh, people from outside of government and learned from experts about what they thought about how we should address this problem. And I relived all of those scientific integrity violations that I had tracked for the decade previously. And I helped develop ways to better safeguard science in the future. And I'm proud to say that in January of this year, we released a White House framework to improve scientific integrity everywhere. So now, across the government, in ways that never happened before, there are people and policies and processes and infrastructure in place to improve scientific integrity across the entire federal government. And after all of that, I actually went back to my high school chemistry teacher. And I told her about my career and the impact that she had on me when she gave me that very first lesson in scientific integrity. And you'd think that a teacher that you know, has so many students year after year would never remember a specific incident like that. And you'd be right, she did not. <laughs> but she did uh, have this to say. Gretchen, I've received many communications from students over the years, but none has affected me as much as your note. I've now joined the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I look forward to following your career. So when I look back on all of this, I'm confident that the work I did to help advance scientific integrity will leave a lasting legacy in this country. And I'm hopeful for a world where science and scientists can thrive and where science can better serve society. And I know that that will matter in the real world. Thank you. <laughs> That was Gretchen. Head to storyclutter.org to learn more about her. Being a storyteller on stage is just one way to make Story Collider happen. But if standing alone in the spotlight, speaking in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a Story Collider donor is more your speed. Story Collider donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story Collider is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storycollider.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our next story is from Liz Landau. Liz works with NASA to tell inspiring stories of exploring the cosmos. She's also a former CNN journalist and freelances for the New York Times, Washington Post, and Smithsonian Magazine. Her story was also recorded in Washington, D.C., and is all about facing unintended consequences of your actions. Something I'm sure we can all relate to. Here's Liz. It was October of 2012, right before Halloween. I was working at my dream job. I was a health and science journalist for one of the top news websites in the country. At that point, I had been there for about four and a half years. And sometimes I thought about the reasons why I got into journalism. I wanted to tell big, complex stories that really illuminated the human condition, that made people think about the world in a different way, discoveries, medical research, the things that were really exciting to me that I thought might be exciting to other people. But I learned pretty quickly at this news organization that in order to be successful, you have to split your brain in half. One side of your brain has those more complex stories and narratives that you're researching, you're talking to people, you're going and meeting them in person for these stories. But the other half of my brain, I'm going to call feeding the beast. What I mean by that is that when you work at a news website that has a lot of content for people to keep refreshing the page and read, you have to generate new content. You have to generate a lot of it. And of course, I always held the standards of being accurate and telling full stories, but I also felt a lot of pressure to feed this beast, not only just new stories several times a week, but also page views, page views were the favorite meal of this beast. And I had this in mind this one day in October of 2012, when a researcher approached me uh, by email. I had written about some of her studies in the past. She had a study in which she had surveyed over 200 women on a lot of different topics. She asked them a lot of questions about themselves and their beliefs. And she had found this very interesting link between women who were single and who said that they were in their most fertile part of their monthly cycles and their political views. She found that those women were more inclined towards the liberal democratic party and politics, whereas married women, when they were asked about 
their political preferences and where they were on their cycles. Married women who were in their more fertile period, they were more inclined towards the conservative Republican presidential candidate and politics and ideas. And when I really thought about it, it was kind of funny, right? Like it's kind of a weird conclusion to make. Uh, it also didn't seem to be backed by a lot of good methodology. Because when I really looked at the study, the women had not been asked, uh, the, the women had just been asked about these things. There was no biological testing of where they were on their monthly cycle or anything like that. And a, a lot of different variables had been analyzed and correlated. So it, it definitely was not proving that where a woman is on her cycle has anything to do with her political leanings. But what I also saw was the word women, the word voting, the word hormones. This was gold for that beast that loves page views. Now, of course, I wanted to tell an accurate story, even though I was turning it around pretty quickly. I called up some noted scientists. I sent them this study that was not published yet, but was accepted in a peer-reviewed journal. And they outlined some of the concerns that I just mentioned. And I have to tell you that I kind of had fun writing this blog post. It wasn't even featured as a main article. It was on our medical blog. I even said something to the effect of, please read on with caution. Scientists have skepticism, something along those lines. I sent it to my editor. She uh, read it. We had a conversation about the headline and a couple of other things. We pressed publish, and I went to lunch. Wendy's, spicy chicken sandwich, page views. When I got back to my desk, my Twitter was on fire, but not for the reason that I thought it might be. When I started reading what people were saying with the link to my story, my heart started to pound and I started to sweat because it seemed like hundreds of people were saying that I was a bad journalist, that I believed that women's hormones were driving their political preferences. One person even said, Liz Landau hates women. And I am a woman. And, you know, at first I was like, okay, well, a lot of these people, they only read the headline. They didn't even click through. And I thought that maybe it would go away. But as the day went on, these tweets just kept coming. Some of the tabloid media started writing about the scandal brewing on social media about me. Around five o'clock, the editor-in-chief of our newsroom came over. She said she had an idea about how to calm people down on social media, because the headline had been something to the effect of, do hormones make women vote in a certain way? Question mark. Well, if we just put study colon, do women vote with their hormones in a certain way? Surely that would calm people down. I wasn't sure if that was true, but she was a boss. I did exactly what she said. 
and I left for the day. I had tickets that night to see a Halloween-themed puppet show at the Atlanta Center for Puppetry Arts. These puppets were acting out sort of classic horror stories. This is the ghost of your career, Liz Landau. That's what I thought they said. I was shaking in my seat. Was I still going to have a job the next day? To make matters worse, when I came out of the show, I had a voicemail. The editor-in-chief had left this voicemail, and she said that, in fact, they were taking down my article, an article that was on a major news website that had gone viral was being taken down. This is the ghost of your career. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it because I knew that now this was real news. And by the next day, so many major news outlets had covered the fact that I had written this article that was taken down. Some even reprinted it using the web archive. This is the story this news outlet doesn't want you to read. I, I was shaking. I, I almost didn't even show up to work. But I did somehow muster the courage to walk in the next day. And when the editor-in-chief brought me into her office, she said, Look, you know, I'm not being punished, and this is all going to be water under the bridge by Monday. How could that be true when every single news outlet, when thousands of people on Twitter were all saying how terrible I was, how I had spouted these terrible uh, falsitudes about, about women and, and their hormones? And I had realized in that moment that I had actually never stopped to consider what it would mean for a woman to even see this headline suggesting that there was even a possibility that women's hormones relate to their political preferences. I had been so focused on feeding that beast that I had no idea that people would interpret it this way. And then what was even more astounding to me was that all of these other news media, they were feeding me to their beasts. Th this is just how it happened. And I, I couldn't believe it. Could I really go on? And if I lost my job over this, who would I be? Would I really be able to continue writing if I didn't have this position at this prestigious organization? I did a lot of reflecting that weekend and I, I tried to forget about it, but I was still actually a little bit surprised that by Monday, it was true. The world had moved on. There were no more mentions of me on Twitter. There were no more articles about me. But all of those articles, they came up when you Googled my name, Liz Landau as if I had never done anything else as a journalist, as if I had never covered the Mars rover Curiosity landing or the discovery of the Higgs boson or cancer research or homelessness or HIV AIDS in the South. All of the things that I was most proud of had just disappeared because of this one story that I didn't even think that much about before I published it. Thinking about this incident, 
I think I learned a few things. The first one is that when you publish something under your name, whether it's on a social media site or whether it's on a very prestigious news website, the world will hold you accountable for those words, no matter who else had approved them, no matter who made the decision to publish them or unpublish them, it's still going to be on you in the eyes of the world. And as a result of that, I decided that I was going to be more thoughtful about the stories that I proposed, even the shorter ones, to take more seriously this idea that these words were going to be mine always. And now that it has been many years, I don't work at a news organization anymore, but I still am doing freelance journalism on the side. And it has given me the freedom to choose the articles that I want to write and pitch them because I also have this job as a science communicator. So the fact that I have more control over the stories that I go after, I feel like maybe I'm finally free of this beast. Thank you. That was Liz. If you'd like to learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Collider, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storycollider.org to become a financial supporter. And speaking of financial support, on December 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, the Story Collider is hosting the ultimate Story Slam showdown. This is your chance to donate to vote for your favorite storyteller or storytellers throughout the night and see who will emerge as the Story Slam winner. All proceeds from the night go to support the Story Collider's programs. And if you can't join us on December 12th or don't know who to vote for, please make a donation to Story Collider to support our work in 2024. More details about this show and all our other shows are on our website. The Story Collider is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Shane Hanlon and Miriam Zaring-Halam. Special thanks goes out to The Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Burnson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, I'll be back with stories about deep, dark secrets. Trust me, you won't want to miss these juicy tales. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.